could you guys stand in reading of Exodus 7? It says, And the Lord God said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall teach Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring them out, the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take out your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their other staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. You guys may be seated. Well, good morning. Thank you guys for being here today. My name is Matt. I'm one of our elders here, and really glad to get to continue in our Exodus study this morning, we had a little break from the hurricane, and then we were out of town uh, last week, so I'm especially glad to be with you guys today, and we're glad to have the kids with us. Uh, it's Family Sunday. We do this the last Sunday of each month, so kiddos, uh, remember there's a, a bulletin made just for you with some fun activities for you uh, while we talk through these things. I encourage you to listen and try to take some notes as we go. Uh, we do have a pretty heavy topic this morning um, for kids and adults uh, to comprehend. So I want to I pray and ask the Lord to, to just unite our hearts and minds as we work through uh, that passage Josh just read for us and eventually look at some of the content all the way down to the end of chapter 8. So let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your love. Thank you that we come to you as hardened sinners and Lord, you soften our hearts and you give us hope in Christ. You open our eyes to see your glory in his face. And you draw us out of the world uh, that we find ourselves in. And you draw us into yourself. And Lord, we experience this indescribable, unfathomable love and kindness in your presence. And so we thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to see that uh, as we study this passage today. Unite our minds to focus on these truths. And Lord, would it be to your glory as we gather around your word this morning. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in 1983, a show called 60 Minutes aired a segment that they called The Devil is a Gentleman. And in this particular segment... Mike Wallace interviewed various people who either knew or had encountered during World War II a guy named Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was the famous mastermind of the Nazi concentration camps. 
So I don't have to go into the details of his biography for you guys to recognize who he was and, and what the title is alluding to there when it says that the devil was a gentleman. We're talking about Eichmann himself as the devil. Uh, he was the mastermind of what the Nazis called the final solution to the Jewish problem uh, that ended in the concentration camps. And he was eventually put uh, on trial for war crimes in 1962. And 20 years later, Mike Wallace is going back and he's interviewing people who knew him and who are part of the trial and, and just sort of reflecting on what the rest of humanity can learn from this guy. And he interviewed this guy named Yahil Denur, who was a Jewish man who had been uh, a captive in the concentration camps, had, by the grace of God, survived and lived to tell about it. And he was supposed to be kind of the star witness of the prosecution against Eichmann. And Denur got on the witness stand. He began with a, a profound opening statement, and then he, he kind of froze up. And pretty soon he began crying, and pretty soon he began weeping, and then he was convulsing. And he eventually had to be sort of drug out of the courtroom by officials. He did not finish his testimony. And there, there are photos of this on the Internet. It became this kind of iconic picture of the lasting legacy of the Nazi concentration camps. This man cannot even look uh, his captor in the face. He can't stand to be in the same room with him. So years later, Wallace is interviewing him. And he says, you know, as you reflect on that moment, why do you think you were so overcome with emotion? And was it rage at all you had endured? Was it fear at seeing this monster again? Uh, was it just kind of overcome with this desire for revenge? And, and Deneur, much more <laughs> composed 20 years later, says, no, it was actually none of those things. He says, what happened in that moment was as this man came in, I realized he was not the monster I remembered. He was just an ordinary man. And I became afraid about myself because I realized I am exactly like him. Talking about Adolf Eichmann. So Mike Wallace uh, ended that segment of 60 Minutes by looking into the camera and uh, declaring perhaps one of the most theologically profound statements to ever air on American television when he said, Eichmann is in all of us. Eichmann is in all of us. I tell that story because in order for us to make sense of the passage we just read, this business about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, his heart being hardened and refusing to turn to God, we're going to have to do the same kind of sober self-reflection that Yahil Denur was able to do on that witness stand. We have to be able to look at Pharaoh not as just some maniac from the ancient world, but really as a mirror into our own souls. He himself, for all his evil, for all his stubbornness, was just an ordinary man like Eichmann. So when we look at Exodus chapter 7 and 8, we're going to encounter some mysterious things. There's some really odd things in this chapter. Uh, the most memorable things are the plagues. Uh, we'll kind of introduce those today and look at them in a lot more detail next week. But then we've got this business of Pharaoh's hard heart. Uh, we've got these Egyptian sorcerers able to do some magic tricks. It's hard to kind of make sense of all this. But the thing I want to try to make clear to us as we look at this together today is that these mysteries in this passage reveal to us some spiritual realities that you and I need to know. We need to recognize because they are as true today as they were in the ancient world. But in order for us to grasp those, we're going to have to do some of that sober self-reflecting that says, 
Not just this is some story in a book, not even just this is history and this was a really bad guy, but what does this story say about me? What does it say about the world I live in? And perhaps some of us would be a bit like Yehiel Denur in recognizing that we're exactly like this evil guy we're going to read about in this story. So we're going to start in chapter 7 here. Uh, Josh read for us verses 1 through 13. We're going to spend most of our time there. And you look at the first five verses, you've got this speech from the Lord to Moses. It's really an answer to a question that came at the end of chapter 6. Moses says, how is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Right? And that's a a fair question. Uh, Hart looked last week at chapters 5 and 6. We saw what happened when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh the first time. Uh, He rejected their pleas to leave Egypt, and he made the work of the people much more difficult. And so God is going to reassure Moses in those first five verses. And what he essentially says to him is, your mouth and his heart are in my hands. Right? So how are you going to keep going back to him? How do you know he's going to listen? It's because your mouth and his heart are in my hands. Now, the first part of that is really easy to see how that's reassuring. Right? God says to Moses, I will give you Aaron. I'm in verse one here. And the words to say, and you will be like a God to Pharaoh. So your mouth is in my hands. I'm going to make sure you're effective. But the second part of that, it's a bit hard to understand why this is encouraging, why it's meant to be encouraging. Because in verse 3, God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is one of those great mysteries we encounter in the Scripture. How are we to understand the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? It's one of the key themes that is kind of woven through the next few chapters of the book of Exodus. I want to just spend a few minutes thinking about it in particular. Pharaoh's hardness of heart is mentioned some 20 times in the book of Exodus. And you need to know it's, it's mentioned in a few different ways. Sometimes God himself takes full credit, full stop, for Pharaoh's hard heart. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Like he says there in verse 3. Later on in the narrative, he'll say, I hardened Pharaoh's heart, and God himself takes full credit. But other times, Pharaoh himself is blamed. He is given credit for hardening his own heart, like we would see down in verse 15 of chapter 8, if we were to continue on in the passage. Pharaoh hardened his heart. You see that throughout the text as well. And then other times, it's just reference that Pharaoh's heart was hard, and the actual cause is kind of ambiguous. So who's ultimately responsible? I mean, this is one of those great conundrums in the Scripture. How are we to make sense of this? Well, if you take this passage as kind of a paradigm and just step back and look at the whole of Scripture, I think what you see are these two truths that are laid side by side in the text of the Bible. And it's something like this, that God is sovereign, and yet we are responsible for our choices. God is sovereign and we are responsible. He is in control. The Bible will teach us over and over again that He is in control, and we are culpable. We are responsible for our choices. We're tempted to put the word but in between there and kind of hold those truths against each other. God is sovereign, but we are responsible. Scripture actually doesn't do that. It just lays these truths side by side and says this is the reality. Remember we said some of these mysteries point us to some greater spiritual realities. And you see this throughout Scripture, that God is in control and we are culpable. 
You see it in relation to unbelief. You think about passages like Romans 1, where it talks about uh, the people hardening themselves. It doesn't use that exact language, but the concept is there. They, they uh, suppress the truth with their unrighteous choices. That's why they don't see what is plain in their sight. And then later in the chapter, it talks about how God has given them over to their selfish desires. And so they're responsible and God is sovereign in the process. You see it in relation to faith. Think about like Ephesians 2, one of the clearest testimonies to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. And that faith is your responsibility. Your heart must cry out to God. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. And yet the very next verse of Ephesians 2, verse 9 says, That faith is a gift from God, lest any man should boast. And we see it even down to the point of individual human actions, right? That that these two realities live side by side in the Scriptures. God is sovereign and we are responsible. We could look at a lot of different choices in the Scripture and see how God makes clear that He is at work even as the people are making their own choices. But I think to, to make the point as clear and simply as possible, I, I go to the, the high point of human history, the most significant event in the biblical story, the cross of Jesus Christ. And in my mind, if God is sovereign over that moment and people are responsible, then it makes sense to conclude that that is going to play out in other actions as well. And so you think about Acts chapter 4. Peter is standing before the Jewish leaders, and he looks them in the eye. He's talking about Jesus, and he says, This Jesus whom you crucified, unequivocally, he says, You are responsible for his death. And then just a few verses later, same guy is praying to God, and he says, They did this, God. What they did was according to what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the people are responsible and God is sovereign. So if we're to take that larger picture and just apply it into this moment in Exodus, I think the answer to our question would sound something like this. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart to fulfill his sovereign purposes. And twin reality, Pharaoh hardened his own heart to pursue his selfish desires. Both were operative in the story, and we see it all throughout the text here. And I think beyond just kind of the philosophical question of how does this happen, we've also got to get our minds around what is actually happening. What are are we talking about when we say that Pharaoh's heart is hardened? I've used this illustration before. I borrow it from one of my favorite seminary professors. He said, when we read this story, sometimes we, we kind of imagine Pharaoh like sitting in the palace, you know, kind of thumbing through his Bible and singing, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And then all of a sudden something just grabs him and it's like it's overcoming. And he thinks, I feel evil all of a sudden, like his heart is just hardened in the moment. And he was going toward the Lord. And all of a sudden he's turned around by some miraculous intervention. The reality is the hardening of God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is really just continuing the process that Pharaoh himself is already pursuing. Right? I like the way S.R. Driver puts it. He says, The means by which God hardens a man is not necessarily by any extraordinary intervention on the part of God. It may be by the ordinary experiences of that person's life. Life hardens Pharaoh's heart. Think about each time 
that Pharaoh and the Egyptians bow down to a false god. It's another layer over his heart. Think about every time the Egyptian people bow down to Pharaoh. That's another layer over his heart. And over time, slowly but surely, his heart becomes calcified to the truth. It is, it is callous or it does not respond. When you start to think of it in those terms, this may sound a bit more familiar than it does at first reading through the passage. Maybe you've seen this play out a bit. Somebody, this may be some of your story, perhaps. You know, somebody grows up in the church. They, they hear about the things of God. They, they hear the stories of Scripture. And then they have some really difficult life experience. Maybe somebody hurts them. Maybe, do, maybe somebody does something evil to them. Maybe they just suffer in some really difficult way. And it's like this, this layer begins to develop over their heart. And they're not as sensitive to the things of God as they once were. And then they go on a little further in life and they have some choices in front of them and they kind of know this is what they should do, but they go this way instead. And then on the other side of that, as they're starting to feel the shame and the guilt for the foolish choices they are making, they find some philosophies that help cover over all that. We don't need to answer to God. We, We don't need to worry about Him. There's time to come back later. I'm just having fun. It's just a season of life. And over time, each of those thoughts becomes another layer calcifying their heart to the truth. And over time, they they add layer and layer of cynicism and unbelief, apathy. And eventually, the things that they once believed are absolutely buried beneath what Jesus would call the cares of this world. You see, if Eichmann is in all of us, And there may be a bit of Pharaoh in there too. And there's something in the human heart that is drawn toward uh, anything that gets us out from under the judgment and shame and guilt we feel for our own actions. We're self-protecting. So we believe anything that tells us it's okay, you don't have to worry about what you've done. And those false ideas become layer after layer on top of our hearts. And eventually we reach a point It might be said of some of us, or it might be said of some of your friends, that their hearts are hard to the things of God. That's what's going on with Pharaoh here in this passage. So as as we think about this spiritual reality, remember we said these mysteries, they, they kind of occupy our mind, but they actually point us to some realities we need to know about. As we think about this spiritual reality, the the image of Pharaoh's heart, I think it should impact a couple of things. It should impact how we think about this story in front of us, and it should impact how we think about ourselves. When you think about the Exodus, you think about Pharaoh's heart, that ought to alert us to the reality that this story is not ultimately about the people of Israel getting out of Egypt, right? Because if if the ultimate purpose of the Exodus was just to set the captives free and God is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, what in the world is he doing? Right? Why not soften his heart, get them out at the first request, and we can just move on with them worshiping? Clearly, there's something bigger at work here. God's not just rescuing the people He's also glorifying himself as the God who rescues. Pharaoh's hard heart is going to play a huge part in that process. So 
thinking about Pharaoh's hard heart ought to think ought to change how we think about the story, but it also ought to change how we think about ourselves. Because remember, he is just an ordinary man. There's nothing any more evil about Pharaoh than you or I, right? And the scriptures pick up on this reality of the possibility that the human heart can grow hard and even gives instruction to the church to be careful about it. So like Hebrews 3.12, you don't have to turn there, but just uh, maybe jot this down and look at it later. It says, take care, brothers. This is addressed to Christians. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what's it saying there? We need to exhort one another as believers on a regular basis, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We cannot read these stories and think, Pharaoh was such a bad guy, and those Egyptians were evil, ignorant people. And we need to read these like a mirror to our souls. If I'm not careful, this will be me. And one just real, real practical implication that we get from recognizing passages like Hebrews 3 is that being in isolation is a place of great danger. So we need the community of God. It says we need to exhort one another lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's one of the reasons that we do community groups here. We're going to do a community group Sunday in a couple weeks. For those of you guys that are new, we've had a lot of new folks get involved here at Midlands in the last few months, and we're so thankful to have you. We want to invite you to take the next step forward to join in a community group. And it's not just getting your name on a list. It's not just having some friends to have dinner with every once in a while. This is about getting in a community of people that will exhort you to keep on believing, keep on trusting in the living God, lest you or I be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. And when you see this happen, I'll tell you, it's one of the saddest things to witness as a pastor. I've seen it time and time again. You get used to seeing the same faces each and every week. Eventually you start to notice you haven't seen somebody in a little while. If you're a pastor and you know you haven't seen anybody in a little while, that, you know, it's not good news, typically. You don't know where they're at. You start to hear maybe they've had some stuff going on in their life. You start to hear maybe they're not responding too well to that. You reach out to them, you don't hear back. You, you, you start to hear about some choices they're making, some things going on. Slowly, the life they've begun to live starts to make sense to them. And then people start to come to them and start to reach out to them and start to speak truths to them that they used to hold dear in their heart. And it's like the words of God are falling on deaf ears. It's like the spiritual realities that you and I hold to, they are blinded from seeing. Their hearts have become hardened to the things of God. It's a terrible thing to see. So perhaps you're here with us this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. And so like Hebrews 3, it doesn't talk to you. It says, take care brothers. It's talking about those who are in the faith. But if, you, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a believer, I just want to encourage you. You need to recognize what the Bible says about the spiritual reality of your heart. This is a hard word, but it would be unkind of me to not point these kinds of things out. Scripture says you are dead 
in your trespasses. You are dead in your sin. Scripture says you have been blinded by the God of this world. There's a spiritual power at work keeping you from seeing the things you formerly saw or you've never seen before. And if you're, if you're hearing these words and they're, they're not sinking in, you need to recognize that that could be because your heart is hardened to God himself. But li- listen up. If, if you're thinking that might in any way apply to you, make sure you hear this, okay? If God can harden a heart, God can soften a heart, right? So sometimes we read stuff like this and we get a little confused and scared about what this means and what this doesn't mean. This is some really, really good news. They're eventually going to get out of Egypt, right? And they're going to get out of Egypt because this stubborn, evil, hard-headed guy is going to say, go. Because guess what? God is going to keep coming after them in his mercy until they cannot deny his power. A hard heart is no match for the living God. So if you find yourself in that spot today, you can cry out to him this morning. Even now, as I'm talking, you can bow your head, you can pray, and you can say, God, soften my heart. Open my ears to hear these things. Open my eyes to see you as you truly are. And he is a God of mercy. But let me warn you, his Mercy may not come in the form that you expect it to appear. I'll come back to that in just a minute. So the first kind of mystery we see here is Pharaoh's hard heart. It alerts us to the spirituality of our own heart. Uh, The second mystery we find in the text is this business about the Egyptian magicians turning their staves into serpents. If you're reading this from kind of a Sunday school perspective, you're thinking good guys, bad guys, Moses and Aaron are the good guys. They've got God on their side. They take their staves. They turn them into serpents. It's meant to show their power over Pharaoh. He's got a cobra on his head and God's demonstrating his power. Well, then he calls his buddies in and they do the exact same thing. What in the world are we to make of this? Well, there are a few different ideas as to why the magicians of Egypt were able to do the same thing. Some people say these guys were just really good tricksters. This was kind of sleight of hand, right? They didn't really do this, but they're really good at creating illusions. I think that's silly. I think they're just too many intelligent people for that to make sense. Second idea, maybe these guys were really good snake charmers. Like there are people in Egypt today, supposedly, who can paralyze a cobra. And if you paralyze a cobra and they're completely stiff, you could theoretically carry that cobra in looking like a stick. And then if you cast it on the ground, it would wake it up and it starts slithering around. Right? So they're not actually doing magic. They're just really good at hypnotizing snakes and they've done this thing. I, that would be impressive, but I don't think that's what's happening. Here's a third explanation. And in one sense, it's the scariest, but I think it makes the most sense of the text is to recognize that maybe what's going on when the sorcerers of Egypt match the work of Moses and Aaron is that maybe this is the work of the enemy at play. Maybe this is demonic power at work in this world. And you guys thought we were getting a little crazy with the hard heart. This is where some of you are going, where did I go to church this morning? Okay, let me just tell you what the New Testament says about Satan. Okay, I'm just, I'm gonna, I've got a paragraph here, a bunch of references to what the New Testament says about Satan. 
2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of this world. The God of this world. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 says he is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 6.12 says he possesses cosmic powers over this present darkness. He has power in this world. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says his work can include all power and false signs and wonders. I think passages like that help us make some sense of what we're seeing here. There are a few different ways you can make sense of these stories, but as I read uh, what is happening in the plagues, and I read what is happening with these magicians as they're able to match what Moses and Aaron do the first couple rounds, I think what we see here is the gods of Egypt actually working. And I think the gods of Egypt are demonic beings that really do possess some power in this world. But notice their limitations, right? They merely copy the work of God, and they do it in a far inferior way. It's always hilarious to me how quickly this, uh, they move on from this in the text. They cast down their staves, they become serpents, and Aaron's staff, serpent, snake thing, swallows them all up. It's no small thing for a snake to swallow another snake, much less a bunch of them. But there's no mistaking here who is superior, right? And so that points us to, I think it points us to another spiritual reality here in the text, that Satan and his minions have power in this world. They are not to be trifled with. They are not to be dismissed. We haven't evolved beyond this in our modern age, but they are mere creatures and they are no match for God Almighty. That's what this story shows us over and over again. In his book, uh, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis talks about how the demons have not discovered how to produce pleasure, right? And it's very insightful. He says, they've only figured out how to convince people to pursue it in the wrong way. They cannot create, but they are good at corrupting. And that's what we see here in this passage. Moses and Aaron are going to do something, and at first, and this isn't going to last very long. These guys are not that impressive. Uh, at first, the magicians are going to match them. The Egyptian sorcerers are going to be able to do the same thing. But they can't stop Moses and Aaron. They can't uh, do anything other than what they're doing. All they can do is imitate it. And what they do is clearly inferior. So here's where we're at when you kind of step back big picture. When you get behind the mysteries of this passage, you recognize the spiritual realities at work here. You've got a nation of millions of people there are probably two, three, four, maybe five million Egyptians in the nation right now. You've got a nation of millions of people, and they're enslaved to false gods. Real gods, real beings, demonic powers who hold sway over them and yet can never deliver on what they promise. And in order to get their attention and in order to capture the hearts of his people, God is now going to systematically dismantle everything they are trusting in. He's going to show the Israelites and he's going to show the Egyptians that everything they are hoping in cannot hold up. But notice how this happens as we start to get into the part of the passage we didn't read and we start to get into these plagues. Notice how this happens. In his mercy, God is going to allow them to suffer 
to recognize their need for him. See, that's a hard truth. But Christian or non-Christian here this morning, you need to recognize and understand what is happening here. Because I think it points us to kind of the third spiritual reality that we can gather from this passage is that God in his mercy will topple our idols. He will destroy them in order to get our attention. And so God is going to start working through these plagues. And he's going to show the people of Egypt that the gods they are hoping in are very easy for him to conquer. And he's going to show the people of Israelite, the people of Israel that their God is supreme over all. And in his mercy, friend, he may do the same to you and I. Not in spite, not in anger necessarily, but sometimes in genuine love and affection for you. He may cause your idols to topple over. It may be some relationship that you're resting your life in. It may be your pursuit of identity and your major or your career, some aspect of your life that seems to be all of who you are. And God is going to graciously and mercifully in his kindness rip it out of your hands so that nothing remains. And you're able to see how foolish it was to try to build your house on that castle of sand. And then he's going to show himself to be the jealous God who has been relentlessly pursuing you and waiting for you all along. But the process is likely to be painful. And that's exactly what we see here in Egypt. I'm not going to go into the plagues in great detail, but I want to just introduce them briefly. And then we'll talk more about the details and what God's doing here next week. But to finish out chapter 7 and 8, the first plague, uh, the water is turned to blood. The water of the Nile is turned to blood. Uh, remember, the Nile River is kind of the pride of Egypt. It's their source of sustenance, right? It's what separates them from other nations. And in an instant, God exposes the lie of their own self-sufficiency. You guys, this is nothing. This is nothing. I can just turn it to blood, and all of a sudden, you've got nothing. In the second plague, he sends these frogs. Now, frogs seem like a weird place to go for us, but for the Egyptians, uh, the frog uh, represented a god of fertility, another source of life, right? God's going to multiply those frogs, and then when he wants to, he's just going to decimate them all. He's showing them all very clearly who is the god of this world and who truly holds sway over life. Then you get to plague three there in the middle of chapter eight. It's these gnats. And look, we live in South Carolina. I don't have to explain gnats to you people, right? We know that they are the embodiment of evil. And lest you doubt the uh, existence of demonic forces, go hang out by the river on a hot day and spend some time with those gnats and mosquitoes, and you will have no problem recognizing there's evil in this world. Uh, interesting what happens in this third plague is the magicians can't match this. They kind of come to the end of themselves. So... Whoever they are, whatever they're doing, however they do it, it lasted two plagues. They're, they're faded to the background now. But even they recognize and say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't touch this. We've got nothing left in the tank. But Pharaoh's heart won't budge, right? The issue is not the amount of evidence. It's not whether or not this was provable or indisputable. There's a battle in his heart. 
and he's not given in. And then the fourth plague are these flies. Uh, this always you know, kind of makes sense when you think about the Nile is flooded and there are like piles of frog carcasses everywhere. So the frogs seem like, or I mean, the flies seem like sort of an inevitable thing. Uh, but what's, it, what's unique is that the flies do not bother the Israelites, right? When you read the end of chapter eight, they don't go into the land where the Israelites are living. So these flies are tormenting everyone except God's people. He's making this clear distinction between those who are his own and those who are still living in rebellion against him. And he's alluding to a reality that will that forecast a future where the scripture teaches us Jesus himself will return to judge the living and the dead. And there will be a separation between those whom God has on whom God has set his affection and those who trusted in God and those who continue to rebel against him. And and God is setting up this picture as he uh, sends these flies into Egypt. So four plagues in, Israelites are still in captivity. We get to the end of chapter 8. The heart of Pharaoh is still hard. But as we see here, God is doing something much bigger than just getting his people out of Egypt, right? There are far bigger realities at play. He's demonstrating his superiority to the gods of this world. And one by one, he will topple every one of their lies. And so what we're going to see as we continue in the chapter. The thing that I'm thinking about this morning, though, as we come to a point of closing here, is is what you see in this text and what you see throughout the Bible is, is that sometimes the same group of people can see the same things and yet come to really different conclusions. I mean, the Israelites, certainly Moses and Aaron, are receiving these plagues by faith. Surely the people of God by the end of chapter 8 are starting to realize we're different than them. And, you know, there's a mercy in that we're protected from these flies. And we can all see this distinction. The magicians are catching on. They say, this is the finger of God. The Pharaoh is continuing to oppose the work of the Lord. And it's kind of like that moment around the cross of Christ. You, you imagine, you know, you get Jesus hanging on the cross and there are these two thieves uh, on either side of him, right? And, and one of them is joining with the crowd and mocking him, hard-hearted and stubborn, continuing down the path he has chosen. And the other turns to Jesus and said, would you remember me when you get into your kingdom? Down at the foot of the cross, the crowd is ridiculing him. Why don't you bring down angels to save yourself? The disciples and his mother are weeping, seemingly hopeless about their future. And then there's a centurion who kind of steps into the middle of the scene and, and gives the most theologically accurate commentary on the moment. He says, truly, this man was the son of God. And he gets it. Nobody else seems to get it in the moment, but he gets it. This is the son of God hanging on this cross. And thinking about that scene and thinking about the end of these chapters, it just reminds me that there's a division in our world between people who see these things, people who embrace these things, and people who ridicule and mock these things. If you're in the, that latter category, where you hear this stuff and you just say, man, that's fun, but it's just not for me. I just want to, again, implore you. These are not fairy tales. These are true stories that point to spiritual realities that are just as real today as they were back then. The human heart can grow hard to the things of God. There's a reason you 
feel this resistance mounting up in you. And part of what's going on in your own heart as you hear this is you have an enemy who wants to destroy you. He wants to abolish you. He wants to wreck your life. And he's doing everything he can to blind you from seeing what others see. But God in his mercy will not be defeated. He will continue to pursue you. And along the way, he will topple every idol in your heart till you learn to trust in him. That's in his grace and in his kindness and in his mercy. So again, I I just want to invite you to, to consider those truths today and cry out to him for mercy this morning. We're going to sing a song in a moment. And what we do here at the, the close of every service at Midlands is we, we take communion together. Some folks call it the Lord's Supper. It's, it's a time for us to commemorate the work of Christ on the cross. Uh, when we think about the death of Jesus, we recognize that that moment 2,000 years ago has everything to do with this moment in our lives. And so we want to remember that faithfully. And taking communion each week uh, is really an act of faith for us. So uh, we're going to start a song in a moment. And if you're with us this morning and you're trusting in the Lord and you're believing in this gospel that we have preached today, we're going to invite you to take communion with us. Uh, You can go back to the tables at the back of the room. Uh, There's bread and juice there and you'll take it on your own and then just return to your, your seat as you're ready. But I want you to know, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, if if you would consider yourself on the outside of these things looking in, you actually don't need to participate in this. Because this is one of those dividing line moments. right? Just like the flies didn't go into the land of Goshen because God's people were there, there's a division at the communion table. right? And those who are trusting in Jesus and seeking to live for Him go to the table in faith. And, And those who are not yet ready for that just don't need to participate at all. You don't need to feel bad about that. You don't need to feel awkward. You you just need to uh, know it wouldn't be appropriate for you to do it. It wouldn't be real for you, right? But I want to invite you to make the most of these moments. I want to invite you to ask the Lord to soften your heart. Ask the Lord to open your eyes. Ask the Lord to open your ears. And if you'd like to talk to me or somebody else more about it, we are available and we would love to talk with you this morning. I'll be at the back of the room. I'd love love to discuss these things with you. So let me pray, and then the band is going to come, and we'll close up. Lord, thank you for your word of truth. Thank you that you have uh, spoken to us in these ways, that you've written these things down for our instruction, for our good. Thank you, God, that you do not leave us. Thank you, God, that you save stubborn sinners. I'm reminded as I read this story and I think about the hard heart of Pharaoh, Lord, you only save stubborn sinners. All of us had hard hearts at one point. All of us were deaf to the things of God. All of us were blinded to the spiritual realities around us. But God, in your grace, you've opened our eyes to see and we thank you for that. We praise you and we take communion now in faith that you will come again and you will bring us home someday. For those who still do not see, Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would open their ears this morning, that you would soften hearts, and that your word would be sown deep in the soil of their hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray.